When I was a junior in college, I had been really involved in a Christian fellowship group, a campus group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, my, my junior year, there was a major change in both the staff and in kind of the philosophy of ministry, how our chapter was going to work. We had been entirely student-led and student-run. That was kind of a hallmark of InterVarsity back in the day. But now we, we were told that the staff, the, the, the paid staff workers, and I would eventually become one of these staff, but that's a different story. We, we were told that, that the staff were not going to play a larger role. They were going to give more leadership to what this Christian group on campus was doing. Now, as one of the student leaders that year, I had to make a decision. Would I go along with the new approach or would I resist? Those of you that know me won't be surprised when I tell you I chose resistance. And I proceeded to make the lives of those staff workers rather miserable for the next two years. It was a foolish decision for many reasons, and I would have to later go back and apologize to those staff before they would hire me to come on staff. That was good. Uh, but, but one of the reasons, and of course I didn't see it at the time, one of the reasons there was a particularly foolish decision to, to choose resistance was that this was a battle I could not win. Graduation was coming, and I was going to leave. They were going to outlast me. Now, all of us are faced with these kinds of decisions. From the the new boss's agenda at work to the governor's various pandemic mandates to a parent's rules or a pastor's counsel, faced with authority, faced with the exercise of authority, do you recognize it? And live happily under it, at peace with it? Or do you reject it and resist? Now, lots of things will go into affecting whatever decision we decide to make in whatever situation we happen to be in. But not least amongst those factors is surely maturity, right? When we're younger, we're, we're more likely to want to take our stand on principle, And we feel ourselves quite a bit. As we get older, we start to consider the possibility of success. And if there is no possibility of success, we are less likely to put up the fight. Less likely, that is, except with God. It seems that no matter how old we get, when God's authority crosses our own, we struggle. When when his plans conflict with my plans, I want to resist. It's almost like we're hardwired to engage in a fight with God that by definition, that is since he's God, right? By definition, we cannot win. If he's God, and he is, he's going to outlast us. If it's not maturity, then, if it's not getting older, what is it that could lead us to submit to his authority? 
What would allow us to actually live at peace with God? To answer that question, we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is my fourth and kind of concluding series in the book of Luke. Way back in 2014, long before a bunch of you got here, we considered Jesus the prequel. We kind of looked at the, those opening chapters where Luke places Jesus' birth in light of Old Testament prophecy. And then in 2016, still long before a lot of you got here, we learned how to walk with God. In chapters 9 to 19, where Jesus kind of withdraws with his disciples and spends focused time teaching them, what does it look like to follow me? Now, now last year, and a lot of you were here for that, we looked at chapters 4 to 9, and, and we saw Jesus revealed there in his early ministry in Galilee as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, there is a through line through all of this. Through it all, Luke has been showing that everything from the announcements before his birth all the way through his early ministry, in the middle of his ministry, all of it is going according to God's plan. And that brings us to these final chapters, chapters 19 to the end of the book, in a series that we're calling Jesus Fulfilled. In the last week of his life, Jesus is not only resisted and opposed, he's betrayed, abandoned, tortured, and crucified. It looks like the plan is falling apart. And yet, as we're going to see in this whole series, I hope, and especially this morning, all of that too, all of that resistance, all of that rejection, all of that opposition that Jesus faced was necessary. Necessary to fulfill and accomplish God's plans, including his plans for people like us to live at peace with a God like him. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided in the pews, this is found on page 932, 932. Uh, we're going to look just at the end of chapter 19 this, for, this morning. And let me, let me begin by reading verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. That verse marks the turn into the final section of Luke. Jesus has finished all of his teaching about what it means to follow him. All that is now left to be done is to fulfill everything that had been written about him in the Old Testament. That's what he's going to say at the end of the book. And that begins here in chapter 19 with his arrival as the promised king. Now, our passage from 28 down to the end of chapter 19, is organized as a series of approaches. You see that there in verse 29, as he approached, and then again in verse 37, now he came near, it's actually the same word, he approached, and then in verse 41, as he approached. So there are these series of approaches as he nears his capital city and then finally enters in triumph. And what we're going to see is that the king has come in peace. But his people, and especially the leaders, 
don't want him. They're going to reject and resist. And the question that they face is the same as the question that faces us. Are you at peace or at war with God's king? Are you going to live at peace or are you going to live at war with God's king? He's the king regardless of the decision you make. The question is, what's your relationship to him? So we're going to consider this chapter and consider this question in two simple steps. We're going to think about the king at peace and we're going to think about the king at war. So let's look first at the king at peace. We're we're going to pick it up in verse 29. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Well, as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he first approaches these these two villages, the villages of Bethany and Bethphage. It's on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is on the other side of the mountain, uh, according to the the, the road that that he's traveling. And, and, And so far, Jesus has been traveling on foot. This whole way, he's been traveling on foot. As he moves from Galilee down through kind of the far side of the Jordan River and now coming over into Jerusalem. But all of that's about to change. He sends two disciples ahead and he tells them where they're going to find a young donkey. They are to untie it and bring it to him. And of course, Jesus being Jesus, A, he's poor. He doesn't own a donkey. This is not his donkey. But Jesus being Jesus, he's God. He knows exactly how to tell them where to find it. And what they should say to the owners when the owners raise some questions. If anybody asks. And of course, it happens exactly like he said. As they untie the donkeys, the owners object. What doesn't come out quite so well in an English translation is the word that's used for owner. It's literally the lords of the donkey object. Hey, hey, what are you doing, my donkey? The lords of the donkey, the owners of the donkey, they don't want their donkey taken. Who are these strangers coming up just taking the donkey? But the disciples' reply settles it. You may be the lords of the donkey, but the Lord has need of it. It's a strange story. 
But right away, we are confronted with what it means that Jesus is king. He he is Lord. We think of ourselves as lords. No, you don't use that language in your head, but you think of yourself this way all the time. You're in charge. You're master. You are the Lord of your life, the Lord of your stuff, the Lord of your time, the Lord of your agenda. But the scriptures come to us. Jesus comes to us and says, no, 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 not so fast. Jesus is Lord. The Lord. And as Lord, he commands To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, is to submit to the lordship of Christ. His ownership of all that we have, all that we do, all that we are. I was was powerfully confronted by this truth as a a young college student. Many of you know this story. I, I went to college in order to be a doctor. I come from a medical family. It was just always assumed, of course, I'm going to be a physician. And that's why I went to school. God found me in college. And he turned my life upside down. And all of a sudden I realized, huh, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he really is Lord, maybe I ought to ask him what I should do with my life. I'd never asked him before. I'd ask my grandparents what I should do with my life. I'd ask my parents what I should do with my life. I'd ask my guidance counselor what I should do with my life. Most of all, I've been asking myself, what do I want to do with my life? But recognizing that Jesus is Lord meant recognizing I haven't asked the most important person yet. What should I do with my life? The answer didn't come all at once, but as you can tell, I didn't become a physician This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means giving up being the Lord of your life and submitting to the fact that he is the Lord. And when he has need of our service, he claims it. When he decides to deploy our talents or our time, he does not ask our leave. Jesus is Lord, and that settles it. That is enough for a follower of Christ. And yet I want you to see here in this same little story that this is our king at peace, not at war with us, right? He doesn't take the donkey by force. He honors the lords of that donkey by involving them in the fulfillment of God's plan. Why did Jesus need a donkey? I mean, he'd walked this far. Why couldn't he just keep walking? Well, it's because everything must go according to plan. To to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The other gospel writers make a bigger deal of this. They actually quote Zechariah 9. The reality, of course, is Jesus is God in the flesh. He could have created a donkey on the spot, I suppose. I need a donkey. He could have just sort of made one wander across his path and gotten on it. But no, that's not what he did. In in condescending love to those little lords of the donkey, he revealed his will to them and empowered them to obey it. 
so that they are now included in this story. 2,000 years later, people are still talking about the owners of the donkey. Christian, the Lord has need of you today. Not because he's needy. He's not needy. But he has need of you today because he is the Lord. And he would, in his great love, employ you to accomplish the plans that he set before the foundation of the world. Now, how is he going to do that? He's going to do that as you hear his word and as you obey it. And not just you personally, but as we together in this local church listen to the word of God and obey it and put it into practice. The Apostle Paul will will later say in his letter to the Ephesians that the church is actually meant to be a display of the wisdom of God to the watching world, to the angels in heaven, and even to the demons. As we live out our lives together in obedience, as we submit ourselves to the Lord in his word together, he is employing us. He is using us to accomplish his plans. Is that not more than enough to command your obedience, to compel your love, that the Lord of heaven and earth would involve you in his plans? What are those plans this week? What are those places in your life this week where you're going to feel it? You're going to feel the Lord's will crossing your will. You're going to feel the Lord's plans crossing your plans. Oh, at that moment, you need to remember the lords of the donkey. At that moment, you need to remember, oh, he is not crossing my will. He's not employing my stuff. He's not asking me to give my money or my time or my attention for any other reason than because he wants to employ me in all that he is doing. Let that speak to your your will, to your feelings, when you're feeling like resisting. But, but in fact, what you're being given an opportunity to do is participate in the Lord's plans for the universe. Well, why a donkey? This leads us to the second approach of the king in peace. You see it there in verse 37. Now he came near, he drew near, he approached the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. And then what does the crowd do? They actually quote Psalm 118, verse 26, which we heard read earlier. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. That psalm, Psalm 118, gives thanks for the Lord's vindication and deliverance 
of the king. And it was understood in Jesus' day to be a psalm that looked forward to the coming king, the promised king, the Messiah who would deliver his people. These disciples, as Jesus begins to make his way down the Mount of Olives, now towards Jerusalem, nothing stands in between him and Jerusalem now. He's on the back of this donkey, prophesied by Zechariah 9. These disciples are praising God. They are declaring the promised king has finally shown up. He's come in the name of the Lord. The king has come and he's bringing peace in heaven and glory to the highest heaven. And both the Mount of Olives and this donkey ride are evidence that what they're saying is true. Then not only did Zechariah prophesy that the Messiah would show up on a donkey, that's Zechariah chapter 9, but in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, the prophet declared that when the Messiah showed up, he would show up on the Mount of Olives, and that's the place where the deliverance of God's people would begin. The triumph over the enemies of God's people would start when the Messiah appeared on the Mount of of olives. The donkey means that that victory is certain. Uh, I, I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm not around donkeys, typically. I really don't know anything of what they're like. But my dad actually raises horses, so I have been around horses quite a bit. Horses are big, impressive beasts. And my dad doesn't even raise the kinds of horses that a king in the ancient Near East would have used if he were going out to conquer something. He would be on a massive war horse. And in fact, this is the way it worked in the ancient Near East. A king who was coming to conquer would ride a war horse. But a king, and I know this seems strange to us, but a king who was coming in peace, maybe a king who knew he'd already won the victory, a a king who knew that he had nothing to worry That king would come riding on a donkey. This was not just a humble ride. It was a peaceful ride. It was a ride that showed that the king came in peace. And the crowd can see it. You've got the king who's who's done all these miracles before in Galilee, demonstrating that he is who he claims to be, and he's showing up on the right animal, and he's showing up in the right place. They can see with their own eyes that the triumphant king who comes in peace and brings peace has arrived. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus the king brings peace. Peace in heaven between us and God. So often we look for peace in the wrong place or we we look for it through the wrong means. We want peace here and now. We want peace in our bodies. We want peace in our relationships. We want peace in our circumstances. And so what do we do? We try to secure peace in our lives and for our lives through our ability to control things and maybe the people around us. Or, or we try to achieve that peace through, through our, our wealth or our talents or failing all of that, we settle for a false peace as we lose ourselves in entertainment or substances. Friends, the peace that we need is peace with God. Peace in our guilty consciences that can only come through forgiveness. Peace in our souls comes from being in a right relationship with God, our Creator, 
Friends, this is what Christ brings. And he brings it for all who repent of their sins, who repent of trying to be their own little lords, trying to establish their own little kingdom and maintain their own little peace and instead give their allegiance to Jesus as the Lord. At the end of the service today, we're going to celebrate baptism. And this is what baptism really is. Baptism is a picture of giving our allegiance to the Lord of dying to ourselves as we go down into the water and being raised to a newness of life, but it's a newness of life in service to the king. Baptism is a declaration to the world of our allegiance to Jesus. And if you understand yourself to be a believer, but you've not been baptized upon your public profession of faith, public profession of allegiance in that way, we would love to talk to you about what it would look like to follow Jesus in obedience in this way. Christian, you have already put your faith in this king. You have already sworn your allegiance to him. But then so often we wonder, why don't I have more peace? The crowds are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And you look at your own life and you think, well, I'm following Jesus, but I don't have peace. Why is that? Why is it that we're beset with anxiety? We wonder if the Lord has forgotten us in the turmoil of of cancer treatments or chronic illness that just doesn't go away or stressful jobs or, or difficult marriages or no marriage or no kids or kids that don't talk to us anymore. And we wonder, where's this peace? Could it be, Christian, that you too are looking in the wrong place for peace? Jesus has secured for us a peace that cannot be shaken, a peace that cannot be disturbed Because it's peace in heaven. It's peace with God, between God and us, a peace that will endure for all eternity, that nothing on this earth can shake. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. Which means, Christian, if peace in this world is what you're after, you're going to be disappointed because he's already promised us that that's not what we're going to find here. No, instead, Jesus has accomplished something better for us. With peace in heaven secured forever, Christian, the troubles of this life, real though they may be, the troubles of this life cannot be the most significant thing about your life. Set your heart in heaven because that is where your peace is. Well, the Pharisees are scandalized by this whole scene. Uh, They understand. They're they're not confused. Uh, They're they're not ignorant at all. They understand exactly the significance of what the crowd is shouting. And so they scold Jesus. 
Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Get your people in line, Jesus. But Jesus isn't scandalized at all. He knows that what they're saying is true. He knows that what they're saying is accurate, is right. In fact, it's appropriate. And so he says, this is so right, this is so appropriate, that if they were silent, the stones would start singing. The stones themselves would start crying out the truth that the king is drawing near in peace to bring peace to those who recognize him, to those who receive them. And if human beings can't recognize him, the stones surely do. Well, not everyone is as perceptive as stones because not everyone is interested in submitting to this rule and this king. Not everyone is interested in receiving the peace that he brings. And so that leads us second to the king at war. Look at verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Verse 41 is the the third approach, the third step of drawing near to Jerusalem, and the mood shifts dramatically. Jesus begins to weep at the sight of the city. So much he loves this city and the people in it. Now, it's interesting, though, because the the, the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus as a, a man of sorrows. The Gospels record only a few times when he cries, when he weeps. And every time it is in the prospect of judgment falling. He says there in verse 42, if you only knew what would bring peace, but. But the thought remains unfinished. Because they don't know. The people of Jerusalem have already rejected Jesus. You can read about that at the end of chapter 13, where after the rejection of him, Jesus says, you will not see me again until the day. You say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As a result of their refusal. The truth is now hidden from him, hidden from them. People people are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they, the people of this city and the leaders, they cannot see it. As a result of their refusal, part of God's judgment on them is now blindness. 
Because of the refusal to believe, war is coming. Judgment is going to fall. Jesus predicts the siege and fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome there in verses 43 and 44, something that will happen in 70 A.D., about 40 years after this. But but what Luke wants us to notice is the reason for the war, the reason for the judgment. It comes there at the end of verse 44. They did not recognize the time when God visited you. When did God visit the people of Jerusalem? It's a reference to Jesus' own life. God taking on flesh and coming down and living in their midst. His ministry was an offer of peace and reconciliation with God on God's terms. But having rejected God's offer of peace, it's not as if now God's just going to kind of go on his way and let them go on living life as usual. No. No, when the king comes and offers peace, and peace is rejected, Judgment is what follows. War is what follows. And that's what Jesus describes here. Judgment, unrelenting and unforgiving. Friends, we need to understand this. There is no such thing as neutrality towards God. None of us get to claim to be Switzerland, right? We are either submitted to him as our Lord and our God, serving him and worshiping him, as is his due, cue the stones, or we are in rebellion, at war with God, in a war we cannot win. Now, how do I know we can't win our war with God? How how do I know that we're not going to be successful in this rebellion? Well, Well, the scriptures tell us the penalty for our rebellion is death. And so far, the death rate of the human race has been 100%. Nobody wins this war. You cannot build walls that are high enough. You cannot strengthen your defenses enough against the siege of God's judgment, of which the fall of Jerusalem is but a picture and a foretaste. Death will come. And when it comes for you, it will not leave one stone standing on another in your life. So, friend, I want to urge you, do not delay Do do not think that you can respond to Jesus' terms of peace later. Because that day may not come. If you're one of the youth in this church who's been raised hearing the good news of the gospel, I say to you, do not delay. You you might think, well, I want to get through college. I want to get my life started. I want to have some fun first. And then I'll get religious like my parents. Teenagers, you don't know that that day is going to come. You don't know that you'll still be interested, that you'll still even be able to hear this message after you've done all that other stuff. Young adults, do not delay. Do not delay submitting your life to this king. I I know it feels like your life is in front of you. It feels like you're immortal. But I assure you, you are not. 
The day will come when that young, healthy, vital body of yours is no longer so young, no longer so vital. Death will come. If you hear his voice, if you see his beauty, if you feel his love today, then respond today. Because later, it may be hidden from you. Having drawn ever closer, our passage ends with the king's arrival. Verse 45, he went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. He enters the temple, the earthly representation of the throne room of of God. And, And since he is himself God incarnate, it's actually his throne room. This is his house. And the change of verb here is dramatic. He's not approaching. He's no longer drawing near. No, suddenly the Lord has appeared in his temple. He has entered it, striding in with the authority of a king, and he set things right. Luke's account here is incredibly brief, really short. Most of the other gospel writers spend a lot more time on this. But for Luke, the focus is on Jesus' pronouncement and his symbolic enactment of judgment. What was to be a house of prayer a place where God's people could could enter into God's presence and find forgiveness. Instead, he says, has been turned into a den of thieves, a, a place where the wicked feel secure and safe in their wickedness. And so with incredible force of moral authority, what does the king do? He throws the bums out. What are we seeing here? Actually, in both of these sections, the the, the, the coming fall of Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, what we are seeing here is a picture and a foretaste of Judgment Day. When the Lord appears to set all things right, when the Lord appears to judge all that is wicked and is wrong, when the Lord appears in all of his power and authority and glory, he will not come on that day to offer salvation yet one more time. Now, friends, on the last day, on Judgment Day, when Jesus returns, oh, on that day it will be too late. The leader's response lets us know the ultimate outcome of what's going to happen this particular week that Luke is recording. The, The triumphal entry It's not going to feel that triumphal in a few days. Through the week, Jesus continues to teach. We're told that there in verse 47. And the people are captivated by what they heard. Literally, they're they're hanging on his every word. But the leaders are furious. They've been humiliated in front of their own people. And so their response is to now actively look for a way to kill him. Verse 47. And all that's stopping them at this point is is, is the popularity with the crowd that that's not going to last. And the leaders, I think, tell us something very important about ourselves. 
the unrepentant heart, the proud heart, the heart that is committed to being Lord of its own life, responds to being confronted with sin by waging war. The leaders want to kill Jesus. And friends, that's what we all want to do in our sin, in our sinful state. We don't want to get rid of our sin. We want to get rid of God who confronts us with our sin. And this is our greatest guilt. Not the specific sin, but the desire to do away with God so I don't have to be bothered by my guilty conscience anymore. Friends, it is that guilt that deserves not just the overthrow of a city, but the eternal overthrow of a human soul in hell. Now, all of the conflict that follows in chapter 20, and next week we're going to get into it, there's a lot of conflict that's going to come. All of it stems from this event. It's what precipitates the final irrevocable decision to kill Jesus. But what we need to understand is that even this is part of the plan. Jesus' impending death, we can, it's already being foreshadowed for us. His impending death at the hands of the Romans is not because he lost control of the situation at the end and kind of went on a rampage in the temple and embarrassed all the leaders and things just sort of got out of control. No, this is how he finally accomplishes peace in heaven. How can we live at peace with God, a God who by all rights should judge us for our sin and rebellion. The only way is for the king himself to bear the judgment for us. Jesus comes in and judges the temple here, cleanses the temple, but the reality is he is the temple. His body, his person is the place where God and man meet And he will offer his body as the true temple to be crushed. On the cross, God will visit him. And will visit him with all of the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that you and I deserve. but cannot bear. And it will be unrelenting. Not one stone of his life will be left standing at the end of that awful day at Calvary. And as the story unfolds in the Gospel of Luke and everything looks like it's going according to plan, it's at that point that it looks like the plan failed. It looks, it looks like defeat as he's buried in the tomb. It, it, it looks like with, with God incarnate dead and buried, it looks like sinful humanity has finally won its war with God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because by the time Jesus is buried in that tomb, he has already won the victory over our sin, over death, and over Satan himself. And his resurrection three days later proves it. And when he returns, friends, oh, listen, 
when he returns to bring salvation to all those who in this life have put their hope and their faith in him, he will not come riding on a donkey. Revelation 19 tells us he will come riding on a white horse of war to finally and fully put an end to wickedness and sinful rebellion forever. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I need you to understand what we're asking of you this morning. We're asking you to submit to the authority and the reign of King Jesus who died for you. We're not asking you to try harder. We're not asking you to do better. We're telling you, the king, the king of the universe, that the king of your life and of mine summons you to come and bend the knee, to submit to him, to trust him, and in that submission to find peace, to finally be at an end of your war with God, And instead, know his love and his forgiveness, the right relationship that he brings us into. What will allow you, what will allow any of us to live at peace with God? Simply this. Recognize his offer of peace and accept it. Lay down your arms in this war that you cannot win. Accept his terms of peace, trusting in his death for you, submitting to his lordship over you, because it is a lordship of love. And then, join your voice with the rest of us, so that the stones don't have to sing your part on the last day. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord the king who brings peace in heaven by making peace between you and God. Would you join me in prayer? I'll take just a moment and think about that place where you most want to be Lord of your own life and confess it to him. Ask him not only to forgive you for that rebellion, but, but that, that you would know what it means to have the blessing of God in his reign over your life. Lord God, we confess that we think of your kingship We think of your reign and your authority as something that gets in our way, that something that that ruins our life, that limits and constrains us. And yet, we also confess this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Your reign, your reign on the cross, and your reign even now in heaven, is our only hope of blessing, our only hope of life. O Lord, give us 
we pray, the faith to see the blessing that comes from your rule. Give us the humility to lay down our arms in order to be embraced by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.